Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This episode of the Crack House Chronicles is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It's professional counseling done securely online. Now, Dale, this is a broad range of expertise that is available, which may not be locally available in many areas. Yeah, this service is available for clients worldwide. Worldwide? Worldwide. Worldwide. And you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you don't have to worry about sitting in an uncomfortable waiting room and waiting on a traditional therapist. Yeah, which is really good in this time. You don't really want to go and sit in the waiting room with a bunch of people with stuff going on that's going on today. Sit there with a mask on and... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's no good. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. And if you don't like your counselor, it's pretty easy to change. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. It's more affordable than traditional online counseling, and financial aid is available. That's always good. Right there. That's, a, that's awesome. Yeah. And BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. That's right. So visit their website and read the testimonials. They're posted there daily. All right, Dale. Visit BetterHelp dot com slash chc that's better h-e-l-p and you can join over one million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional that's right in fact so many people are using it now they're actually recruiting counselors in all 50 states so a special offer for our listeners you can get 10 percent off your first month at betterhelp.com slash chc you got to use the code word betterhelp.com slash C-H-C. Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man that says that if you were born in November then your parents probably had a pretty good Valentine's Day. You it's, right. da- it's Dale. Because <laughs> I was born in November. There you go. Your mom and dad. I'm living proof. Knocking it down. There you go, bud. I'm telling you. Woo. What's going on with you? I'm rocking and rolling, man. It is good. Day. Feeling good. Feeling yeah. good. Kind of shitty outside, but other than that, it's all right. Oh, yeah. We've had uh, a couple beers and something to eat, so we're we in good shape, man. That's right. Oh, yeah. Get out of the rain a while and knock us out. We can't do this straight. We have to have a little buzz. Yeah. Well, you know, it's our usual thing. Yeah. Have a something to eat and something to drink and chill back and we just have a true crime good time, don't we? That sounds like a plan. That's right. That sounds like something ruined the bathroom wall. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds like a song. Uh, Faster Pussycat. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what they found on the bathroom. That could have been. All right, bud. You got any shout outs for us today? Uh, just a few. We want to give a, a shout out to some of our Facebook friends. Uh, shout out to uh, Jennifer Orcutt. Deborah Dingus and Trella Williams. Hey, shout out to you ladies. So we appreciate you jumping on there and commenting and stuff. That's always cool to have a little feedback from you guys and 
And it makes us feel good to be noticed. Absolutely. We appreciate all of our listeners. Yeah. And we appreciate those that go on our the store page. All those people who like us on Facebook that give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Heck yeah. We appreciate all of it. Yeah. And if you hadn't already, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rate and review. Please. Five star. Five star. It really does help the show. It does. We appreciate you. Absolutely. So, so much. All right, Dale, we're going to get into our episode, man. All right. And we have a North Carolina case. Imagine that. Yep. And it is uh, several, several years old. Yeah. From 1971. 1971. Yep. And this is the case of Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann. M-A-N-N. Yep. M-A-N-N. Yeah. N. Now, Jesse... He was born Jesse Allen McBain on February the 15th, 1952, to parents Allen Newland McBain and Hilda May Glosson McBain. He was almost a Valentine's baby, wasn't he? Yep. And this was in like Chatham County, North Carolina. Chatham County. Yep. And Patricia, she was born Patricia Ann Mann on February the 6th, 1951. Hmm. She was born in Sanford, North Carolina. And that's in Lee County. Uh, to parents William Fletcher Mann and Leela May Mann. That's a lot to say. Yeah. Leela May Mann. Leela May Mann. <laughs> Mann. All right. Both February babies. How about yep. that? That's very, very cool. Now, Dale, our story takes place on February the 12th, 1971. The bulk of it. Yeah. And on this particular day, it was raining just like it is here today. Almost... Same kind of weather. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. It it? is kind of creepy. (laughs) And this was when Jesse, who was 19 years old at the time, was going to meet his girlfriend, Trisha Mann, at her dormitory. Right. Now, Jesse was in North Carolina State University. Yeah, he's a football player. Yeah. Patricia, she was going to nursing school at Watts Hospital in Durham. Right. And A very prestigious nursing academy. Yes, it was very rigorous, too, by the way. Yeah, three-year... What was a three-year deal, and you have to stay there the whole time, and it was pretty, really strict. They had, like, lock-in time at night. Yeah. Where they had to study. They couldn't leave their dorm or anything. They yeah, just, they, they couldn't leave, and then it was like, what, 7 to, seven to 9 p.m. It was lock-in. Couldn't even go to the bathroom without getting in trouble. No TV, no pretty, radio or anything. Yeah, make you study. Yeah, it was pretty rigorous. Crazy. Yep, but uh, like I said, she was going to nursing school there, and she was 20 years old at the time, just a year older than Jesse. Right. And this particular night, on February the 12th, 1971, it was around 11.30 p.m. Jesse and Patricia, they had left a dance that they had went to. Right. And what had happened was, Jesse, him and his brother, they shared a vehicle. Right. And uh, usually, Jesse, what, he had it on Saturday nights, and his brother yeah. had it on Friday nights. Yeah. But... They worked out a deal where they could swap nights. Yeah, he said that, uh, you know, he had, he was at home yet in uh, Pittsburgh. And uh, he went home from NC State back to Pittsburgh. And uh, he was hanging out, and he thought he was just going to be there. But his mother said that since she hadn't, hadn't had a chance to make him a birthday cake, she was going to have uh, his brother swap out nights so he could drive down to uh, pick her up and surprise her and take her to that Valentine's dance they were having at the, at the nursing home. So he was pretty thrilled about that. Exactly. And he didn't, he'd even left the box of candy that he bought her. Yeah, left it on the counter. Yeah, he was so excited to be able to go and get her and take her to a dance. 
very very cool i hate that but still that's that's that was young love yeah you know my head i can just see like jethro going hot dog yeah <laughs> let him jump in the car but everything i read they'll jesse and patricia i mean they were pretty smitten for each other oh yeah i mean they would just seem like just a typical young american couple jesse football player and patricia nursing student right so and very much in love oh yeah yep now this night at the dance it was around eleven thirty p.m and jesse and patricia left the dance slid on out yeah they just got out of there now usually at this uh nursing school that the curfew is strictly 11 p.m but they had moved it back to one because of the dance jesse walked patricia back to her dormitory so she could sign out but she had about 1 a.m curfew right now they took jesse's car and drove it to what is present day neighborhood crowsdale Crowsdale. yeah that's c-r-o-a-s-d-a-i-l-e yeah this neighborhood was being developed. It wasn't much there. It was just some roads and cul-de-sacs. Right. Wasn't no houses or anything. It was just under development. Correct. And it was kind of an unofficial lover's lane. Well, it was called the Crowsdale Motel. Uh, <laughs> good name, good name. Yeah. And it was pretty much a, a lover's lane for nursing students. Right. And, you know, anybody that wanted a long time with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Right. And it's pretty much an unwritten rule with the nurses that if a cul-de-sac was taken, you moved on. Move on. Yep. Nobody want to come. And somebody's in that room. Let's go on the next one. <laughs> and there were even a few couples. I guess some of the popular couples that had their unofficial spot, and it was what they called theirs. That's just greedy. Claimed. <laughs> yeah. And other couples would just leave those open in case other couples just showed up i guess yeah that's pretty crazy first yeah. come first up yes man I don't, I don't guess people park anymore do they do they go parking i don't know i'm old yeah i don't know i don't know how that i don't know how that works anymore <laughs> probably not they text in video gaming yeah they're texting about texting yeah i park at my house <laughs> yeah. yeah go in the house <laughs> and close the blinds that's right yep now for jesse and patricia her 1 a.m curfew came and went Yep. But Jesse and Patricia never came back. Saturday morning, Patricia's roommates got concerned because she had never broke curfew before. Right. That's just something she didn't do. She was very, very reliable. She didn't uh, She didn't break rules. Yep. She was, everything was pretty much strictly by the book with her. Very responsible young woman, mm-hmm. even in her nursing studies. Yeah, and I think even about 10 after 1 that, that the they call it the house lady or whatever it was in the dorm they'd come by to check and nobody had seen her and by one thirty in the morning they were already thinking what the hell is going on because mm-hmm. she just don't do this and even jesse by all accounts he was a good guy who wouldn't pressure patricia to do anything against her her moral code or even skipping curfew right so they, you know they were just pretty much two kids by the book just really good kids yep and patricia's roommates they started calling hospitals even thinking it might have been a car accident. Mm-hmm. They filed a report with the Durham County Police Department. Who said they weren't going to do anything. Yeah, they said they had to wait 48 hours. Yeah, I heard one was 48 and one was 24. So, But it said that uh, unless there was like some kind of proof of that something had happened, then, then they, didn't want to, they didn't do anything for 48 hours. Yeah, and they were just pretty much playing it off. So, hey, they might have eloped. Yeah, or just went off and doing whatever they were doing, and yeah. And but anyway, they said no, they didn't. They definitely weren't going off a loop because they already had permission to get married anytime they wanted to. So definitely wasn't that. But you know, how the police were just blowing it off. Yeah, it seems even, to happen a good bit. Doesn't or it? even just, I think I think they even told them that um, they were just caught up in the Valentine's moment and just forgot about it. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, just, you know, like you said, just playing it off. Her roommates, they decided to go look for them. And they hit all the usual spots that what they called Lover's Lane. Right. And that's where they would find Jesse's car parked in one of the empty cul-de-sacs. Yep. They had their coats were in the back seat, but nothing was out of shape or anything, and there were no signs of a struggle, and the car was locked. Yeah. They, but they uh, had those little triangular vent windows. You know, they don't have them anymore, but they could push it in and then open the door. Yeah. They'd reach in and unlock the car. Yep. Yep. So they could see what was going on in there. But uh, Jesse and Patricia were nowhere to be found. Nope. When the families of Jesse and Patricia were aware of their children missing, the local police department finally acted and filed a missing persons report. And investigators started by working off the idea that, like I said, Jesse and Patricia had eloped and skipped town. I guess like they had told them, you know, when they went to report them the first time. But within a day or two, it became clear that the investigators, that something wasn't right with the case. Well, hell, you know, they didn't skip town. They do walk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, gonna, they were out there in the cul-de-sac. I'm going to lock my car up and we're going to walk. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's stupid anyway. Mm-hmm. my point of view. Mm, yep. And <laughs> a woman by the name of Carolyn Spivey, this was Patricia's cousin. And best friend. Yep. They grew up next door to each other and were pretty close friends. Mm-hmm. Yep, like you said. And Spivey even said that um, she got the sickest feeling in her stomach that something terrible happened. Yep. And for nearly two weeks, police and search parties made up of concerned locals worked the area. Investigators followed up with every lead, but came up empty. Yeah, and coincidentally, you know, it's, yeah, Carolyn had said that uh, really the only reason she was at nursing school was because of her, because they always done everything together their whole lives. And uh, originally, Patricia was going to be a teacher. Carolyn was going to be was going to go to nursing school. But then once they got about ready to start applying for schools. Uh, Pat decided that she didn't want to go separate from uh, Carolyn, and they both applied at the nursing school. And then uh, Carolyn didn't get accepted, but Pat did. So that's why she was there mm-hmm. to begin with. It's kind of odd how everything comes together there. Yep. On February the 25th of 1971, this was 12 days after they went missing, a surveyor was working in a heavily wooded area. It's always a wooded area. It's not a forest or anything. It's just a wooded area. <laughs> yeah. They came across a one-lane dirt road and what he thought was pieces of a mannequin and a leg sticking out of some leaves and debris. And when he got closer, he realized that it was a human body. Right. Now, they did say this guy's been uh, doing survey, and he was doing it for the government, I think. But he'd been doing it for years and years and had seen almost anything you could think of in the woods, including mannequins, because so, I thought that was kind of weird that he would go straight to mannequin, but... You know, yeah, but I guess you in the woods all the time. You, you probably see a little bit of everything. Yeah. And police were immediately called. Yep. Yeah, I think he uh, there was a trailer park nearby, and he went back up to the first trailer and beat on the door and told him to call, call police. Yeah. Because, you know, when those cell phones in 1971. Mm-hmm. And they worked the scene, and by the end of the day, Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann were officially identified. Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets pretty twisted, Dale. They discovered that Jesse and Patricia had been tied to a tree and their backs to the bark and their hands tied backwards with a thick rope. Mm. It looked like a hemp rope. And there was rope around their heads and necks. Looked like it had been pretty secured to the tree. Yeah. And their bodies had slumped forward and down, leaving them side by side and partially covered by leaves. Yeah, and even said that uh, the rope around her neck looked like it had at some time been really tightened and then loosened and then tightened almost like a torture yeah 
So I guess it was several different ligature marks. Mm-hmm. Mm. And Jesse was still wearing his class ring and watch. So the police determined that it wasn't about robbery at all. Yeah, and she still had on her promise ring, you know, with the little diamond and everything. And there was no signs of a, of a sexual assault on either either person. Mm-mm. It was just fully clothed, everything. It was just a it was just a, a torture and kill. Right. Pretty much what they determined it to be. Yeah, they said she did have a one internal injury where they thought maybe she had been punched hard, maybe kicked or stomped or something. But and then that was on her liver, I think. Yeah. And then there was also said that there were several little superficial like places where they were jabbed, looked like maybe an ice pick or something. But mm-hmm. they were they were speculating that maybe that was done just to see that they were deceased. Yeah. So he didn't want to leave them leave them alive. Whoever whoever done this. Mm-hmm. And like we said, the area where Jesse and Patricia had been found was a quarter mile into the woods and was very secluded. Yeah, but it was about when they was found. It was about three miles from Lover Lane, though. And this area they said was pretty much scattered and littered with cigarette butts and beer bottles that's where people went to drink and smoke and pretty much just have a good time yeah that was that was a great time mm-hmm. and this area is located right between orange county and durham yeah it's about a mile i think and from the border or something so that's one of the problems where jurisdiction problem yeah that's what probably why they really never solved this thing at the beginning yeah because they they were fighting over i guess like i said jurisdiction yeah who's gonna get the glory yep nobody and there was a detective by the name of tim horn and he pretty much said that there was a lack of collaboration between the units yeah and law enforcement agencies at the time and everybody individually just worked on the case yeah there was no team or task force Mm -mm. and it didn't catch a whole lot of attention or attraction Nope, it was all between Orange County and Durham County and even the SBI, and they were all pretty much didn't hardly anyone want to share their information, which is pretty sad, really. And probably a lot of missed opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, that Horn fellow he was talking about, he, he picked this up way later, like 2010, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, started going back through it, and then that's when he found out all this stuff that was going on or lack thereof. On the night that Jesse and Patricia went missing, there was a, a phone call come into the hospital of somebody pretending to be his father. Yeah, but it wasn't him. Nope. Yeah. His father said he didn't make the phone call to the emergency room or the hospital looking for his son. That's kind of creepy. Mm-hmm, very creepy. And through all this chaos, there were several suspects that picked out, and some were cleared by polygraph tests and others failed. Mm. And one in particular was a doctor at Watts Hospital who worked with Patricia mm. and he repeatedly had refused to cooperate with law enforcement made him more suspicious well I guess so yeah and this doctor was uh, focused in 1971 and even Horn says that he's still the focus today hmm. I know there was like three two or three suspects that they had but mm-hmm. but he really stands out this doctor Britt yeah and even to this day Dale the doctor has repeatedly refused to cooperate with the authorities and I think he even lawyered up and wouldn't even take a polygraph. Yeah, well, they dropped in on him, and all this is, is way later, all this stuff, because I don't know what went on back in the 70s, but when this guy, when he reopened the case in 2010, it was kind of weird how, how it come about. Um, some lady had called him from, uh, they were doing a show, uh, North Carolina's Most Wanted, and was talking to him about it, and then it got him to thinking about it, and then I think the that show lost funding but then later he went to go they were um 
one of the old jails, and they had decided they were going to make a uh, an office in one of the places, and they wanted him and another guy to go and check out the room and see what was over there. And he walked in, and there was just, uh, you know, case files, those boxes sitting everywhere. So the room was full of them, you know, and some of them had like an inch of dust on them. And he walked over to this one that was right in the center, and the lid was off of it, and he walked up to it, and it was this case. Mm-hmm. So it was like it was meant for him to do, you know. So he said that uh, that's how all this got started. And he uh, started. He opened it and started going through it and stuff. And then he went to the sheriff and asked him if he could reopen this case because it's such a, a double homicide, you know, and it was never, um, never solved. Mm-hmm. So that's how he got back into doing all this. Yep. And like Dale said, no one's ever been charged with this crime, but there pretty much remains a possibility that Orange County Sheriff's Office could eventually catch a break. Yeah, and uh, what we're saying is, uh, you know, that that doctor, he's the only one of the, there was, I think they had like three different um, suspects that were top of the list in those files he found, but mm-hmm. only one was living, and that's that Dr. Britt. Him and another lady who was a, um investigator, they decided uh, one day, what the hell, they just cold stopped in and knocked on the door and walked in and talked to him. And they were talking to him and stuff and started questioning stuff and said he got really extremely nervous and fidgety and stuff. And he actually got so um, weirded out that he had to excuse himself from the room and got up and walked out. And, and then they said the, the police got really nervous because this guy's always known to carry a gun. And he had already been uh, uh, questions about uh, pulling a gun on some uh, some hitchhikers and stuff, even though, even though he is a doctor. But uh, when he came back, everything was cool. And he's like, yeah. And he gave him his card and said he'd be glad to help any way he could. And he would uh, give him DNA, and he would come down and do a polygraph. All they had to do was call, and everything would be fine. Mm-hmm. So they said, okay, great. And they went and got in the car and left and said he got about three minutes down the road. And the guy's lawyer called and said there would be no more interviews, no more, no polygraph, no DNA, nothing. Any questions, you call the lawyer so yeah. that quick. Yeah. He shut that down, didn't he? Yeah. So that don't look it don't make him look good at all. <laughs> no. Mm-mm. Yeah, and this guy was known to have a, you know, a pretty hot temper. And uh, the hitchhiker thing, some guy said that uh, when he was younger, he was hitchhiking. And he always hitchhiked, even though, you know, it was just one of them things back in the 70s. And uh, he said, you know, we were young, teenagers, and cars would go by if it didn't stop. You know, on this particular day, they were just feeling froggy and was started just flipping off cars and cussing them if they didn't stop. And this guy, the car slammed on brakes and... uh backed up and the guy jumped out and had a gun and he said that uh, his friend the hitcher guy's friend had a big buck knife and had pulled his knife out and he said he jumped in between them and the guy kind of got weirded out because these kids weren't listening to him even though he had a gun mm-hmm. he said he was a cop and uh he told him to get in the car and he said well he thought that was weird too you know so what the hell so they left and the guy left because they they weren't listening so they went straight into a payphone and called because they was going to call and report that uh, the cop you know was doing this to him they were smart enough to get his license plate and it's in the kind uh the car making model and when they called they said that's not a police officer so he was impersonating the cop but it was definitely that doctor had done it mm-hmm. but then later he denied it was him he yep. said you know, it was his car but it wasn't him wow so he's got a background already yeah yeah doesn't look very good for him at all. No. Mm-mm. And there's some theories that, you know, it could have been more than one person that done this. Yeah. I, I kind of like that because, you know, there was another guy. Um, his last name was Ray. And he's pretty, pretty sketchy. He had been around, you know, and done a lot of stuff. And he had a, a pretty he had a long criminal background. And he didn't see his jobs. He was like a fry cook and 
just you know little uh, odd jobs yeah odd jobs and stuff and him and uh, this doctor, they crossed paths here and there. And even the one time, he was an orderly at Watts at the same time that Pat was there. And this doctor was uh, teaching some classes there. So they had a chance of crossing paths there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, later, when this guy got out of prison for something, I forget what it was in there for at this time, he got out. The good doctor gave him a job working as a lab tech in his, in his uh, practice, even though he really didn't know what he's doing. So... It's kind of weird to me that they would have that kind of camaraderie, you know, mm-hmm. and not have something going on. So that Ray guy was one of the three suspects. Yeah. I mean, he's passed away now. But to me, you know, thinking going on, I'm thinking, you know, it's, with Jesse being as big as he was. Six foot two. A six two, which he's smaller than me, put it that way. But anyway. <laughs> Football player. Yeah, in 1971, six foot two guy was, is pretty huge, I think. Yeah. And – you know, with you know, nobody had a, no signs of struggle, no nothing. I'm sure. So it was either guns involved, or there were two guys, or two people. You know, it's kind of strange that it would be one person could wrangle up a, a couple and tie them up like that. Yeah, it's kind of strange to me. Yeah, you I mean you were talking off the air a little bit ago, and you said if it was one person, then maybe he was able to get a hold of Patricia and use her as leverage against jesse and that could happen you know especially with her having an internal injury you might have gut punched her or kicked her or something you know and he's like well we'll, we'll just do what you want to do yeah or i'll hurt don't, her don't hurt her yeah. yeah you know that kind of thing so you know especially with them two being really good kids you know i don't know they just kind of want to just do what you're told and it just seems like me that that night on lover's lane somebody was stalking out that that site they were parked yeah I just waiting so. for somebody just to yeah, well, but what the hell is the motive? They didn't take anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, his wallet was still there. It was, what was that, $4.63 in his wallet? They had the rings. They yeah. didn't take no clothes. No sexual assault. No sexual assault. Just, just torture, man. Tie them up and strangle them. Meanness. And then leave them. Yep. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I forget, there was another, another suspect who was another doctor, but I think... Uh, they kind of ruled him out later in this later investigation from mostly being a pathological liar about, you know, said he did have a mean streak and he did have some priors, you know, with some violence and beating up women and some stuff like that. But he always liked to talk big and put himself into situations. And some people knew that he definitely was lying about. So they kind of blew him off on this one too, is, is not being, being to this one either. Mm-hmm. So really to me, this Brit guy really stands out, and then possibly if if that Ray fella helped him, but you know it's it's possible to do it with one person. Mm-hmm. You know, FBI pro- profiler said it was one person, which you know most of the locals had really thought it was going to be two, like we were thinking. Yeah, you know, me and him because they always talked about Jesse being big and then so, so strong, you know, way stronger than average. Yeah. Now. A lot of the stuff that they recovered at the murder scene was preserved and protected. And the rope that was used to tie them to the tree was preserved. Yeah. And they claim today that they have a system to be able to extract DNA off of that rope. If there's any on there. If there's any left. And it's a, you know, we made fun of this off the air. You know, we'd heard somebody call it an HVAC system, but it's actually an (laughs) MVAC system. Right. And it claims that they can extract DNA from difficult places such as it is inside of knots that were even used to tie them up with. Yeah, so it could be there. And it's basically an industrial-type carpet cleaner. 
And what it does, it sprays a solution out, and that fluid is captured and condensed down into a filter. And then all the DNA profiles on that have to be uh, extrapolated. And there are only 80 MVAC machines that exist in the world, and 40 of them are in the United States. And pretty much, fortunately for the local investigators, uh, Guilford County, which is North Carolina, that's Greensboro area. Greensboro, yeah. yeah. They recently received a new MVAC system. So, you know, who knows? Yeah. And it's very possible they could extract some DNA off of that. It would be nice if they could find out, because I think they do have uh, DNA samples from all three. Yeah. They, uh, I know uh, the one Ray fellow that died, they found his son, which uh, he didn't ever really have much of a uh, relationship with his dad. But they did find him. He had he had uh, come across his dad. He had come to him out of the blue for a couple of weeks or whatever. But anyway, they, talking to him, and he gave up a DNA. You know, he said anything I can do to help. You know, either clear my dad's name or, you know, help out the family, or whatever. So he gave him his. So you know that would be a link. And then the other guy, I don't know, they've got his, but I'm not sure how. But then it was kind of funny. The the Dr. Britt guy, they got his DNA from a local restaurant that he was known to go to a barbecue place there in Durham. And uh, he said that he, he would frequent there a good bit. So they went and talked to the owners, and they all agreed. So next time he came in, they had one person um, work his table, you know, with the tea and the, the cups and the, the plate and everything. And then uh, they called him and told him he was there. And then once he got done with his meal, they left the table set. And the, the agents come in and cleaned up and took the fork, the plate, and took everything and took it with them. And said they didn't need he didn't need consent for that because it's basically like trash. Yeah. And then as long as the the owner didn't mind, they could take it. Yep. So they've got everybody's DNA. They just got to find, hopefully, you know, enough somewhere else to compare it to. Yeah. You know, a relative or somebody to be able to cross-reference that too yeah or uh something in the evidence yeah yeah because they got you know they got his dna right there oh, yeah. so all they need if anything's on that rope then it'd be the only place you probably could find it at this point and if he wore gloves then it won't be there either yeah but chances of them wearing gloves back then uh you know it may have been cold that night but you know i don't i don't see him wearing gloves right well Not it's like possible you. if he's a doctor he might be smart enough to do it that's true so you know you never know very true but anyway, that's the uh, condensed version of Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann. Now, there is a full podcast on this. Oh, it's way it's, more. It's full. eight hours. It is called The Long Dance. And it's very, very good. A lot of interviews with family, friends, people who knew Jesse and Patricia yeah. very well. Some investigators or one or two that are living, you know, that they found are on there. Yep. Even and the interview with Dr. Britt is on there. Yeah, go and check it out. It's called The Long Dance. Yep, it's very good. Yep. All right, Dale, you got any last words? No, I don't think so. I know this is a short episode, but we wanted to get one out, and this is a pretty intriguing story, and it was around the Valentine's Day thing, and it's a local for us, and it's a, it's pretty intriguing. And uh, like I said, do go check out the other one. It's, it, it, they did a lot of work. It's almost a two-year two two year effort that they put into it, and it's really good. So. Yeah. Other than that, we got some uh, some cool stuff coming up. Uh, we want to tell you about yet, but uh, stay tuned. It's gonna be some good stuff. That's it. All right, Dale, we're going to get out of here. All right, brother. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings on Lovers Lane. <laughs> because the next episode could be about you.
This is The Crack Gals Chronicles. <laughs>